Why would they be interested in speaking about their business? We all want to like leave a mark in the world and they're brutal and, and horrible people and everything you want, but they're quite smart and they like legacy wise, you know, they want to give an interview and say like, I did this and this and this, because if I don't talk, don't exist. Like you're in the shadows all your life. Would you really want that? Welcome to On The Edge with Andrew Gold, the podcast that pushes the limits of stuff. And today is no different. It's one of the coolest video journalists I know in the form of global investigative journalist, Monica Bishamisad. Monica is a Colombian American and grew up in the States. She won the One World Media Journalist of the Year Award in 2015 and has made riveting, scary and thrilling documentaries on PBS NewsHour, Al Jazeera, Vice News and many others about drug cartels, trafficking, civil wars and viruses like Ebola and COVID. She knew Dr. Fauci before he was Dr. Fauci. I mean, he was literally Dr. Fauci, but he wasn't well known. And yes, I know some of you are COVID skeptics and hate and doubt Fauci, and that's fine. But he doesn't take up too much time in this episode, just a few minutes at the end. We'll talk about the realities of reporting on Ebola in Africa towards the end after delving into the beheadings, journalist killings and drug dealings in Latin America. And the rest of the world too as well. She's really been all around reporting on stuff. I love hearing about the behind the scenes stuff. Maybe that's the journalist in me, but the stuff about how you go about arranging a meeting with a drug cartel boss because they don't simply have websites and email addresses that you can just, you know, have a little chat with. We'll talk about the fear or lack thereof in being a journalist going into those kinds of meetings. Uh, do follow Monica on at Monica underscore VV on Twitter. Even if she says she doesn't tweet that much, she does a bit. She's on there. She'll interact and stuff. So go follow her. Find out all about her work. See her website, portfolio, videos and stuff. She's someone I respect a lot and have interviewed and spoken with several times before. So I'm a big fan and I hope you will be too by the end of this episode. Coming up on the podcast soon are Sarah Ferris about how she helped her sister con a con artist and Elgin Strait about the Moonies cult and the assassination of the former Japanese Prime Minister. And also, the Coffin Confessor is coming back on the show, one of my first ever guests, to reveal the secrets of the dead. For now, you're on the edge of drug cartels with Monica Bijamisar. It's good to have you, um, Monica Bijamisad, back on, well, not back on the podcast, because I spoke to you on Sean's podcast like six months ago. How have you been doing? I've been doing great. It's always really nice to talk to you. So I'm happy that we're having this conversation. Um, I'm in Colombia right now at my mom's house. And yeah, there's a bunch of construction. So please bear with me. (laughs) If people hear (laughs) weird noises, please bear with me. If there's drilling, maybe we'll we'll stop for a few seconds and see what happens. Where is that? Is that in Cali with your your mom's house? No. So my parents are both from Cali. My dad is half Spanish, but we are in Bogota right now, which is the capital yeah, it's nice. It's, you know, it's a nice big city. And I am currently editing my first documentary that I'm directing. So it's, um, it's exciting <laughs> and slightly scary. Yeah, it is scary. But how's it going? What's it about? It's going really well. I can't say right now, unfortunately, but I can give you a tip. It's about Afghanistan, which is a country that I really, really love. And I've been kind of wanting to go back um, after the fall of, you know, of Kabul, I wanted to go back and then I thought everybody's there, you know, like all the media and stuff. And I'm just like, I need a really special story, you know, or or something with like an edge to go and and really make a difference. Like I don't 
I've been freelancing all my life, but I don't like this kind of pack reporting where everybody shows up and it's like everybody's getting this, you know, the same story and the same shots. It's it's something that, you know, over the years, I'm just kind of trying to avoid if possible. And then this amazing story just kind of reached me like, you know, by like a like a miracle. And um, I've been working on that since like since January this year. I've got a few guesses in my head about what it's about, but I'm just guessing and I will have to wait and see what it actually yeah. is. Okay. But that's interesting, Afghanistan. And I think that just shows, when we spoke before, I think I was saying to you that my parents always said to me, you know, you're coming a journalist, do anything except like war reporting and drug cartels. They did, and stuff I know. Why do they tell you scary. that? scary. Well, because they don't want me to, you know, they don't want my head to turn up on a spike. Especially recently in Mexico, there have been a lot of journalists being killed and decapitated and stuff, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's, I mean, you know, it's it's terrible. It's terrible. It's heartbreaking. I, I've lost friends. Uh, I've lost colleagues. I mean, you, you have, I'm sure, as well in, in this profession. But it just goes to show that that journalism is so important. And I think it's like weirdly enough, like that motivates me to do more reporting, because if we stop doing that and going to these places, it's like the bad people that win. So, you know, that's kind of, I mean, it's it's difficult for the parents, especially. You're right. I mean, my mom and dad are not always happy with the places I go to and the things that I cover for sure. Yeah. And I feel like I would feel the way you do until I'm caught and I'm somewhere. And then I would think, why did I do this? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think you shouldn't think about it too much because <laughs> the moment you start thinking about it, it really becomes like clear that we do very crazy, you know, just not logical things. And, um, you know, it's like what that, that saying that you may get up to a tree or whatever, but you don't think about how you're getting down. Like you're always kind of on the go and then you realize like, wait, w what am I going to do? How do I walk this back? Like, how do I reverse engineer this? If, if you know what I mean, like a situation or something that's unfolding. And I guess um, that's really bad. That's really like a situation that you don't want to find yourself in. So you must be really passionate about what you do. So what got you into wanting to explore drug ca trafficking, cartels and those kinds of scary things? I mean, I think... I think more than the than the narco beat that, of course, I've like, you know, ended up doing a lot of that uh, simply because I'm Hispanic and I speak Spanish and I'm from Colombia. You know, it's kind of like in, in, you know, in life, you start with something and people kind of call you for some assignments more than others. So it's it's kind of a path that's almost like, you know, drawn for you and, and without really realizing. But I did know I wanted to be a reporter, a, a journalist, and I wanted to write, but I don't write that well. Um, I wanted to be a writer, but like, that's really what I wanted to do. And then, you know, my writing wasn't great. And, and you know, someone advised, like, told me, like, why don't you go get in, you know, into TV, like do TV? And I was like, sure, why not? Um, and then I started really liking TV. But I think my passion and I just like to, you know, to know what what's going on. And I really like meeting people. And I really like the challenge of not judging people and just kind of like meeting everybody, even if they do horrible things and they're killers and they've done, you know, terrible things, just being able to know that we all share things in common and that people end up making choices because of the situation that we're in and kind of like what life gave them, you know, to start with, like not everybody's privileged and, you know, can make the right choice and can have the career that they dream of. So I, you know, I, I really like that. It's kind of like a, a constant challenge of going to places and and trying to be objective. And, and it's very hard, but it's um, it's interesting. I like I like the whole process of just, you know, kind of like 
telling a story to an audience. And I think, yeah, that I'm, I'm motivated about it. I'm passionate about it. I think there's real power in telling the truth and, you know, telling it as best you can. And, and yet, even as objective as you are, you, you were accused of being a spy by Maduro's <laughs> Like second in command, Maduro being the, I guess you'd call it yes. a dictator, is he in, in Venezuela? I mean, yeah, that's a really good question. I don't think he classifies as a dictator because he's always been elected. Obviously, you know, in, in these kind of like democracies and, and you're not quite sure there's always like allegations of mass fraud or voter fraud. I mean, that kind of thing. I mean, he, you know, he has been in power, but but he's kind of state in power, which is a horrible tendency of left-wing governments all over the world, and particularly in Latin America. Um, I met him in person once in a very weird um, circumstance because another president had been deposed in Honduras. I don't know if you remember the coup against uh, Manuel Zelaya. Yeah. And Chavez, Hugo Chavez was president back then of Venezuela. He sent his foreign minister, who was Maduro, and I was interviewing Zelaya and Maduro was there and we sort of briefly met and um, and then, you know, he became president. But his um, second in command, perhaps some people say he's the, he's really like the, the power behind the throne kind of thing, so to speak. Diosdado Cabello is a very evil man um, accused of drug trafficking, of really kind of heading a major cocaine cartel. Um, and the head of the army. So, you know, not someone you really want to mess mess too much with. And um, yeah, he did. He went on TV saying that I was a spy. Basically, they didn't like my reporting. They didn't like that I'm a dual Colombian and American citizen. And, and, and this is not like I'm super special or anything. Like they've done that, you know, with other uh, reporters in the past, basically when they don't like what you're saying and uh, when they don't like what you're tweeting. At that time, Twitter was very important as a source of information for Venezuelans because they had shut down, you know, entire news channels um, and newspapers. And, you know, obviously they were trying to sh shut down all the, you know, democratic, you know, media or just media outlets out there. And they didn't like what I was tweeting. And uh, yeah, it got pretty bad. Like they just basically said that I didn't have permission to work and that I was going to be arrested. And I was freelancing, but working for Al Jazeera English at the time. And they just said, like, you have to leave. Like, like it's seven o'clock at night. You're on the next flight to Colombia, like 3 a.m. You're going to the airport and you're going to leave because, you know, we just don't know what's going to happen. And sadly, I haven't been able to go back because I want to report in Venezuela and I haven't been able to go back. Like me, like being Colombian, like I'm very close to Venezuela and my family's from the border with Venezuela. So I feel like personally very close to Venezuelans. Um, and yeah, I can't go back. I'm like blacklisted. So basically if I get to like the port of entry, airport, you name it, like I would be deported. And as a freelancer, like nobody wants to send you there because then they'll deport you and they'll waste, you know, money in like course, they're deploying yeah. you somewhere and you're going to be turned around. Tell me what would have happened, you know, people were saying you've got to get out of the country because I don't know too much about Maduro and Venezuela and stuff. My, I, I would be, I would understand in Russia, that's my, the, my feelings on Russia because you're going to get your head chopped off. I know something like that's happened in Argentina. There was this whole thing with this guy called Nisman who's, you know, died and people had to leave the country over there. 
is that in Venezuela, were you in, in, you know, mortal danger? Could something, you know, could they have killed you? Nobody knows. I mean, it's a good question. Like the, the sort of Chavista mobs can get quite aggressive, like especially if they're, you know, kind of rallied on national TV. Like this is a person who's spying on, like, you know, this mob mentality everywhere in the world can, can get quite violent. Like there's a lot of crime. There's a lot of armed, you know, kind of free agents in Venezuela. So that's always a possibility. But I would fear more just being in prison as a political prisoner. I mean, there are American political prisoners in jail right now, and they're used as bargaining chips, you know, with the Trump administration, not so much, but the Biden administration, clearly it's been it's been rumored that that they've been talking about, you know, freeing these Americans in return for maybe the U.S. buying oil from Venezuela again, for instance, and stuff like that. So you don't want to be in a Venezuelan prison. You don't want to be in any prison, of course, needless to say. But a Venezuelan prison, I mean, especially at the time, I mean, the country, well, is still like, you know, really spiraling out of control in terms of like scarcity. There's no food. There's no medicine. I mean, if you're ill in a Venezuelan prison, you're not going to get, you know, any kind of medicine, not because the guards don't want to give you medicine. It's just simply because the country doesn't have any medicine. I mean, it's really sad. It's just kind of gone you know, it's 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 gone worse and worse, and people are like, okay, when you know, when does this actually change? And they overthrow this person or whatever, and and nothing has happened. It just kind of gets worse and worse. We had um, a left wing politician here, Jeremy Corbyn, who I remember he wouldn't criticize Venezuela, and he suggested there was sort of a media bias against it because, of course, the left wing or the right wing, they will always sort of stick together a little bit. So. What is the state of play right there? I, I remember, you know, in Argentina, I kept seeing people who were doctors in Venezuela were coming over to Argentina and they, having, you know, working class jobs or just scraping by or being homeless. Um, what's going on at the moment in Venezuela? I mean, it's, you know, it's hard to say, like, I like reporting in the field and kind of getting my own sense. And because I haven't been able to go in such a long time, it's a really it's a really good question, but it's hard to say. I mean. I guess in a nutshell, it was a regime that was left wing, that it was interesting, led by a very charismatic fellow, Hugo Chavez, which, you know, who like the world was kind of fascinated by him, um, had good ideas, no idea how to run the economy and basically like established like a series of price controls and stuff and the economy collapsed. And then he start he had like, I guess, regional ambitions started like sending doctors as you say to other you know training cuban doctors and sending them everywhere for free sending oil to like um other latin american countries that were allies etc etc and then you know really the country started being mismanaged like financially mismanaged the resources i mean the richest country the, the biggest oil producing country in the world and you know now it's like completely bankrupt which is you know which is sad it, it didn't have to be that way and and then you know corruption obviously started um started happening and then i think it's a very corrupt government today I, and you know multiple sources that i have do coincide i mean i i can say that that it is corrupt um so it's it's a it's a government that wants to stay in place because it's corrupt and they will be prosecuted if you know if they're not in power. You see the thing that people don't realize with Putin and the the likes in the world and the Assads and you know is that when they're no longer in power they don't have immunity. So they have everything to lose and nothing to gain by giving up power. Um and that's just a very you know it has terrible outcomes for the population. Yeah, that's it. They'll they die if they if Putin gives up now, he potentially gets killed or at least put in prison for the rest of his life. Exactly, or put in prison. So exactly, too much to lose. What does he gain? 
nothing. Like he has absolute power. What do you gain by like giving it up? It's just kind of, um, so, you know, well, Hugo Chavez never gave up power. He died of cancer. When he died a few, this was now a few years ago, maybe six, seven years, years ago, Maduro took over. Was there a sense of optimism at the time that maybe things will get better now? Not at all, because he appointed Maduro as his successor. So it was, it was, you know, sort of planned in advance when he realized he was very sick. You know, he planned the succession and he clearly chose someone that was going to be uh, con to continue his legacy, you know. Um, so nobody had any any kind of hopes. If anything, he Maduro is a way less charismatic leader than Chavez was way less smart. Um, I mean, I think that's fair to say, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I just think it just got from like a bad situation to a worse situation. When you were accused of being a spy, and sorry to keep going back to that, I just find it a really fascinating story. Obviously, it's quite scary because you have to leave the country. Was it also a bit funny or a bit proud? Was Were there things like that going around your head? I mean, look, it was super funny. And it's, it's funny that you mentioned it because I was going to do a show with, a, with a, a very famous lady in America who was a CIA spy. And now she's left the CIA and she's kind of become a very famous um, host. you know. And I have I, I thought a show with her would be great. But I don't like spies it's absolutely the opposite of what we do as journalists so i was kind of, you know obviously people glamorize spies especially you guys in britain you know with james bond and everything but <laughs> you know i don't like what spies do i mean they they just kind of like their whole life is deceit and the whole you know a journalist's life is precisely doing unmasking and unveiling the truth you know so in a way we're complete we are kind of like enemies of each other so i was i was really upset um at the beginning, then I kind of laughed, as you said, you know, it was like a humorous thing. Um, it certainly doesn't help that someone cast that, casts that doubt on you, because then you're like reporting with some drug cartel, whatever, and they're like, oh, I Googled you, weren't you kicked out for being like a CIA spy? And I'm like, no, wait, okay, let's like <laughs> dial this back. I'm not at all, uh, you know, at all, but it's just like, I don't know, like people have doubts sometimes, because they're like, you know, it's out there, it's, it's, it's on the internet. It's a great uh, party conversation starter, though. <laughs> yes, and like, it's interesting what you say about journalists and spies being opposites. I hadn't thought of it that way. You know, I'm writing a book at the moment about the, the nature or the psychology of secrets and secrecy and what that actually is. You know, what is a secret and what, and to talk a bit about journalism as well, because, because they might be opposites in one sense, because you see spies are more deceitful. And I suppose the insulting thing is the suggestion that you have an agenda when, when you see yourself as neutral, whereas a spy is one sided. But you also, you know, both people, there are similarities. You're both uncovering truth. You're both going to dangerous places to get the, that truth. So it's a, it's a strange relationship. No, you're right. It is. But I don't think spies uncover any truth. They, they deceive, they deceive people for a particular government's interest. And it's often very murky, you know, journalists like want to like, especially investigative, you want to like, you know, like kind of dig into these like secret society, secret, you know, people who are doing secret, murky, shadowy things, right? Like we want the truth and everything exposed in the light. And I guess that doesn't benefit as pie if they're kind you know, their cover is blown or, you know, things are exposed. So in a way, we, we do opposite things, I think. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? 
the internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about, but in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think it is difficult in today's age with sort of the Instagram culture and the narcissism and a lot of people who want to become journalists as well to to do proper old-fashioned journalists journalism that that doesn't choose an ideological side that is that is centrist and in the middle or whatever is that is that becoming harder for some people That's a great question and I think yes yes I think people are like you say becoming self-obsessed um, social media is like a weird mirror that people kind of like can show like their worst. <laughs> I think the worst of them too sometimes comes out in social media, but it's, but it's uh, true. Journalism is not about a person. It's not about the journalists. We are never the story. And I think it takes some humility to sort of like not make it about yourself, you know, to go somewhere and make it about the subject that you're interviewing or researching or whatever. I mean, the, the 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 journalist is completely irrelevant. It's just like a means and like a messenger. But it's but the messenger shouldn't become like you know like a star or celebrity. And we have this weird, you know, Instagram culture, celebrity culture, which I which I find you know not very interesting to be honest. Uh, I, I'm very old school. I'm very very old school. I'm about like you know going to places, not saying where I am, not posting at all, going down, you know, just doing your thing. 
like shoe leather, you know, just kind of going there and, and, and going to the source of the thing and just kind of figuring out how you're going to get in and out alive and with the information or the, you know, the tape with footage or whatever. Um, I mean, in that way, we kind of are like spies. Like there is a mission, right? Like you come in and you come out, I guess. You're right. Now you're making me think and doubt about all of these. (laughs) I think what's hard is, is for me, I've always found hard. So let's say I'm going to do abortion in Argentina and look at the abortion stuff that's happening there. And so in my mind, I don't mind saying it. I'm I'm pro-choice. That's just that's just my thing. But it's very hard then to interview someone who's pro-choice or pro-life and to I'm thinking about my friends back home who are going to watch this and family and people. And I don't want them to think I'm not the thing that I am. But then I have to be aware. So do you find that difficulty sometimes as well? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I never, ever express a political opinion or view on anything. Anything. Well, I try not to because you're right. I mean, what if you like tweet something? You know, there's a history in your tweets, right? Like people will actually like, you know, um, I think famously WikiLeaks would kind of do a whole search of like the person's tweets before, you know, granting an interview. And that's like, that's, I guess that's smart. And that makes sense. They wanted to know if the reporter had a position, had reported on Julian Assange or WikiLeaks or whatever, and and one way or another way or whatever. Um, Again, like, I just don't find, I don't find it interesting. Like, I don't think people are interested in knowing what I think personally, if I'm pro this or pro, it's just not, it's just not that interesting. I think the subject matters are much bigger and much more interesting we need more people like you in in journalism oh thank you i bet but you know but yeah i don't know i mean maybe like i should get more twitter followers and all that and maybe should be more controversial (laughs) to get more likes and i but i i I, you know i don't care i'm I'm totally over social media it's just not interesting for me maybe you know i'll disappear (laughs) i like to tweet this morning that made fun of jordan peterson and it was just like joking about him and then i quickly unliked it because i thought oh but what if i want him as a guest one day and maybe he does what you said about wikileaks he might look through my old yeah maybe right absolutely i mean i tweet like stuff about that my dad tweets out i just retweet them that's basically all my twitter activity right now you know my dad's like an energy expert and i tweet the stuff that he tweets uh you know which is obviously expressing a point of view which is like i'm a proud daughter of a father that's it that's all i do right now (laughs) maybe i should do more but i don't know and if my dad if you're listening you know if you tweet something i'll retweet it as well let's um (laughs) let's get into some of your your stories because you've you know you've had some crazy stories involving the cartel and things like that give me give me a couple of once just to give the listener an idea of the kind of work you do i mean yeah it's a it's a it's a weird it's a very weird world where we um connect with people and have sources and you know meet just kind of like i guess key people in different areas um and you start kind of like kind of like climbing the ladders of an organization if you will like you know you kind of start almost like pitching your case like um to a drug cartel boss person who's in command and like well you know we want to do this and this is who you know what we're going to show and maybe you would be interested in you know showing your perspective or something like that it it usually goes like that um some of these people you'd be surprised is is it by is it by email are you just like emailing a drug cartel leader how do you get in touch you don't do anything by email you don't do anything by phone it's all in person it's all in person 
Yeah. Much like spies in this way as well, you know? <laughs> yeah, you don't do anything over the phone. How do you go and meet a drug cartel leader for the first time and say you want to... You don't meet like a, a big leader for the first time at all. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, you need to go up the ranks. You meet small people. You meet like their, you know, little, like soldier, soldier people, right? Bodyguards, if you're lucky, like not even like inner circle. I mean, it depends on who we're talking about, but you have to kind of like work your way up. Or use people like local journalists or local people on the ground who have those contacts, who have like, you know, kind of built relationships um, and their trust, you know, over years. Um, and then, you know, there's like all kinds of stuff. Like they do tests where like you show up and they kind of study you. Maybe they don't like they observe you from a distance, but you're in a restaurant and you're like a sitting dog. Like that's happened to me. It's really quite strange. Um, oh. Sometimes. Yeah, it's really strange. Sometimes. <laughs> Yeah. Sometimes you um, you meet you meet up with people who are like their security or this or that. Like it's really rare to meet very important people because they're in hiding and obviously not interested to speak and reveal their hiding location. Oftentimes when they control an area so well, they're just like, OK, come to my turf and then we kind of talk in my terms, you know, this kind of thing. I mean, you're always you're always playing under, you know, and doing kind of what they, they'll go as, you basically go as far as they'll let you because there's just no other way. But you still think, okay, is this worth it for the interview? Am I still interested, right? Um, everybody has, you know, interests, right? Like, so people ask me, well, I don't believe it because why would they talk to you? Like, why would they be interested in speaking about their business? And I'm like, well, they don't like reveal anything that will come back and, you know, like, give law enforcement some information to like capture them. I think we all want to like leave a mark in the world. And I think a lot of these people are quite, I mean, they're brutal and, and horrible people and everything you want, but they're quite smart and they've made it really far and they want to talk about their accomplishments and they want to like, like legacy wise, you know, they want to give an interview and say like, I did this and this and this. Cause if I don't talk, nobody will know my side of the question of the equation. Nobody, you know, you're just like, you don't exist, like you're in the shadows all your life. Would you really want that if you knew that you had accomplished like something amazing or, you know, invented some kind of like drug or drug trafficking method or discovered this route or, you know, bec he became, you know, I mean, some of these people are, are really like create, they create like, you know, crazy things. They're really good technology wise. They invent like submarines to transport cocaine. I mean, I don't know, like they do, you know, things that they're proud of. So, so mostly like, that's when they want to talk uh, or, or could, you know, be convinced or whatever. So it's 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 almost like the behind the scenes is actually more interesting than when you get there and do the interview, it seems, yeah. now that I'm thinking about it. Um, it's fascinating. It is fascinating. Sometimes, like, you know, when you're kind of rookie and whatever or you don't have a lot of information, you're just in and out. One time that happened to me, we, we went with a really rookie producer somewhere. We wanted to film in an abandoned ranch and... Little did we know the ranch wasn't abandoned anymore. It was like the headquarters for another cartel. All these cartel people came out with like heavily armed and had like went through all our footage and were very menacing. And the situation was kind of diffused and they were like, okay, in the end, and let us go and whatever. But it, it was kind of like, you know, you have to be like on your feet and really kind of know how to react and don't overreact and don't act nervous because then they're like oh my god they're doing something wrong so if you act too nervous it's like bad but if you're not nervous that i don't know it's just like a weird it's just like 
you have to like it's a lot of like body language and kind of dealing with situations on the ground just like improvising because what's going on internally in a moment like that is your heart in your mouth are you or, or how do you feel the first thing is like this is not happening and you have to get out of your own body and think it's like a like a video game <laughs> that's what i do it's like a video game you know or like a movie or something it's like you're an actor and this is not happening so you're playing a role you have to be like nice and smile and be maybe like naive or whatever or play this because you know everything you do is gonna impact on how they react towards you and your crew so it's a lot of responsibility um it's a lot of responsibility. I mean, you can use humor to diffuse the situation, but maybe they don't find you funny. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's just like all these. I don't know. It's a, it's a hard one. It's a hard. Have one. you tried that humor? I have the humor, and I think they found me quite funny. Thankfully, <laughs> because I don't think I'm that funny, but they did. Um, but it can get really serious. I have a, a my my like favorite producer, um, Alejandro in Mexico was once picked up by a cartel, put in a pickup truck, and they were gonna chop his fingers one by one. And he convinced them not to. And it's the power of like, you know, wit and your, you know, your words, like you have to say the right thing and you have to play it really well. And it's like, you don't get a second chance. What did he do to, what kind of thing? You know what, he's very calm. He's very like in control, like has a lot of authority and I think a lot of these things about like human nature is like things that are not translated verbally. It's just like your attitude, are you assertive? Are you, do you, like I'm saying, like, are you shaking? Are you unsure? Are you scared? Cause maybe you got caught and that's a bad thing. You know what I mean? It's just all like, a lot of it is in the attitude. I don't really know what he did. Like he was just like, look, I'm doing this. He told him the truth. I think he had some proof in his phone. Like, this is where I work for, this is what I'm doing. And I was, you know, really kind of sorry situation kind of got out of control and you guys picked me up here but i really wanted this and whatever he convinced you know he totally con I, I don't he was like safe in the end but again you know i mean were they bluffing they're gonna you know it's it's all like these things that you don't really want to find out uh, anyway right yeah i'm just thinking what advice would would and i don't i guess it's different depending on the person but what advice to give to someone who end up in that situation i i did read somewhere that you know we don't trust people who are too polite so maybe it's not good to be too like supplicant, uh, supplicated and too, you know, and, and that we like, we do trust people who are quite assertive. So someone's like you said, they're quite strong and. Assertive is really good. I think, um, I think, yeah, I think assertive is good, but also, um, I mean, I don't know. You don't want to be confrontational. Like it's, it's hard to tell. Like if you. You know, being a woman is also like different because you don't have any of this kind of alpha competition weirdness going on, like alpha male weirdness going on. I mean, if you if you're you're a man and the person who because they're often men is male, you know, and they feel you're like there's kind of like a competition, things can go really bad. Then you want to really kind of play humble. Uh you know, it just, it's case by case, I would guess. But I, I say I always tell the truth. I mean, that's my real advice. Because if you get caught, I mean, they'll be, they'll be upset on top of everything. They'll be really pissed off at you. If you've lied about something and they've caught you. Yeah, like, like you know, you don't want to be like secretly filming or secretly whatever, because it's just like, they will feel offended. And they would feel like they're being deceived. Like, you think you can get away with it and deceive me? Like, this is how they'll take it. 
Like in their minds, that's how they'll think. You're lying to me and you mm-hmm. think you can get away. You think you're smarter than me or something like that. You know, they, it's like a, it's like a, almost like you're challenging them at that point. And that's, and do you think then that they react different, differently to you as a woman then? Definitely so much easier to be a woman in this kind of male dominated world. Even when I've interviewed and been and, ha- and have had to deal with female criminals, um, I think it's easier. I don't know why. I think you're less of a threat, first of all, to a man. I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a male dominated world, whatever. I don't, I don't like it, but it's the way it is. You know, you're less of a threat. They're just like... You know, they can be nicer. They don't, you know, I, mean, I don't know if some of these people were brought up like, you know, had strong mothers maybe or Catholic or whatever, you know, just like you're not going to hurt a woman because it's like not manly. I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking, but it's just like, you know, I've kind of experienced that maybe it is. It is like easier to diffuse uh, situations if you're a woman. I think like female energy can calm things down. Does that make sense? Like definitely calm things down. It does, yeah. But despite that, have you ever been in situations where you thought, you know what, they're going to cut my fingers off? No, not really. I mean, I've been like, no, I've never been like, thankfully, like never been like roughed up or like, you know, sort of like thrown into the, or anything. I've been in combat situations where you're just like, okay, this is, this can go bad. Um, but not like directly kind of um, threatened. Uh Thankfully, because I think that would be awful. I mean, my colleagues have been in situations where they make them kneel and they're saying, we're going to kill you. And it's just just as like a it's just like to see how they react. Kind of, you know what I mean? That that they didn't in the end, thankfully. But it was it must be like, you know, really traumatic. Um, No, I never thought I would get my fingers cut off. There's the there's like the decapitations as well that took place in Mexico a lot of the time. Does that happen as well in Colombia and Venezuela to journalists? They the decapitations and within the narco world are amongst themselves, like amongst rival cartels. It's never a journalist. Like the only people who decapitate journalists are like um, Islamic radical Islamists, uh, like like ISIS. Uh, you know, Boko Haram probably. I don't think they've they've decapitated any journalists, but they probably would, you know, these kind of, um, you know, terrorist organizations. Um, it's, you know, it, and that's like a whole different, you know, and I've reported on terrorism and, and in places with jihadi groups and stuff like that. And it's definitely like a different kind of, it's like a different kind of rule, set of rules and stuff. Like the narco or whatever things that I've been talking, like they don't really apply to, to these kind of scenarios. There you'll just, you know, you'll just get like decapitated and, and, you know, filmed. Yeah, tell me about the experiences you've had. Have you had many experiences with jihadis? I've reported like, I've reported in Iraq. Um, I've reported in uh, Mali, like West Africa. There's a lot of, there, you know, there's quite like a, a big jihadi advance into that area. Um, no, I mean, we, we were like with the uh, Peshmerga army when they were taking Mosul from ISIS as they kind of started that operation. But I was never like confronted like face to face to a jihadi or anything like that, thankfully. Um, I know, you know, people interview them once they're in prison and stuff like that. I've, I've never done that either. Um, yeah, Islamic like jihadis is like a whole different. I haven't been close at all to them i've reported in places where they operate and you have to be sort of aware of like what do i do if i'm kidnapped 
Um, is there like a real possibility of an ambush? Am I going to wear a tracker? Do I want security on me so that they know, you know, if I'm snatched, where I'm being, you know, all the, you know, there's like protocols for all these kind of scenarios, right? And they, they greatly vary depending on the country, the situation, the type of irregular group that's there. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, British British journalists, like, you know, sadly, we have British colleagues and American colleagues, you know, they're kidnapped and America or Britain won't pay their release. So you, we have colleagues that have been beheaded, you know. I mean, it's a very, it's a very real thing. Because it's, it's, it's money that people, you know, I get, I get why we can't pay the money because then they'll take more people yeah. there but exactly. it's it's like the family of that person must be thinking god if we just gave that money we could have our person back it's the most horrible thing you can do that a family can go through i absolutely agree with you and you know having been in that situation i'm like i wish my family would pay or you know my government would pay but you also understand the other side it's like why would you pay you know you're encouraging a very very horrible industry so it's one of those you know like terrible dilemmas so difficult but, um, so difficult so difficult i i don't think i've i i don't think i would you know ever could deal with being captured or, or in prison you know thrown to prison or by a regime i'm not necessarily like you know i just think you know um you know freedom is just, is so valuable and we don't think of it we take it for granted and in, in every possible way we take it for granted yeah oh, i couldn't agree with you more tell me um a little bit just about your former brother-in-law his story it was a tragic story my former brother-in-law who is um a politician still yeah yeah, yeah. so my sister um married uh, a gentleman called rodrigo lara who's the son of a former minister of justice who approved escobar's um, extradition to America. And at the time, cartels didn't want to be um, extradited. Drug cartel bosses didn't want to be extradited because they knew they couldn't bribe their way out of prison, et cetera, and, and have like, you know, parks in prison, like whatever. You know, they'd be like, they would basically rot in an American prison, as they say, right? Um, so because he approved the, um, you know, he changed the law for the extradition to take place, he was gunned down. And, uh, my brother-in-law was very young. He was a boy. Uh, and and yeah, I mean, Escobar killed his father, but Escobar killed many people. You know, it wasn't only his father. He put a bo he bombed a plane, a whole entire plane, because he was just after one person. So it's an interesting thing because, because again, and I, and I am, I'm, you know, I think about this ethically, like we tend to glamorize or, or the media or, or the shows like Netflix or whatever tend to glamorize these these drug lords when they are truly awful people and they've hurt you know families and they've killed you know people and, and as a consequence you know they've ruined people's lives and and that was like my brother-in-law was we were we always used to talk about it um you know he's just like well I, I wish i had my father alive today and and why do people think escobar was a good man he wasn't he was a, a, a ruthless businessman but but I don't know. People tend to like idealize things. No, it tends to be the the left the left wing idols. So the Che Guevara's of this world. I've even seen like people with Mao on their T shirt um, and and es Escobar. Yeah, there's something about left wing. You're right. But there's also something about right wing people that are idolized. Like I don't know, like Duterte in the Philippines, right? Right wing, and people like him. Like this kind of you know um, people like him. 
But you wouldn't have Hitler on your T-shirt the way that people have Mao or Star- young Stalin because he was handsome. And Escobar, again, because he was right. Escobar helped like the poor why people. Why Escobar? He wasn't a left-wing nothing. He was just like a... Why, I wonder, why do you think that is? Well, he was a hero of the people. I guess there, there's like a myth of him like robbing, like Robin Hood, right? Exactly. Like, I'm going to take the money from the rich and I'm going to give it to the poor. Exactly. Big, big lie. He never gave anything to the poor. Is that <laughs> he became right? very rich, Is that right? and his family. Was, I mean, I mean, like little things, right? Like here and there, and this like little town, whatever. But like in the great scheme of things, and the money he had, he wasn't like a philanthropist or a charitable man. No, no way. I, th- I wonder if the the poorest people in like Medellin and the rest of Colombia, I wonder if they looked at him a little bit like how maybe some people looked at Trump or it was like this, he's going to shake up the establishment and, you know. I think, I think, you know what, it's, you're right. There's some of that. I don't think it's shake up the establishment. I think people look at those guys who like can con the system. They beat the system in this, in a very sly way. And they're like, this guy's my hero, you know, it's like different kind of heroes or they see themselves like, you know, people who were very poor and didn't have any other means to succeed, but like become criminals and do this and that, you know? So they're like, okay, this is the kind of hero that I can relate to. It's not a person that goes to university and works hard and reads books. You know, it's this kind of, it's another kind of path to becoming rich. And I think celebrity and rich people become heroes in modern day worlds. I mean, thanks to maybe social media and stuff we were talking about earlier, right? It's like people admire rappers who came from nothing and then now they're like so rich they're like you know they can do anything but escobar killed loads of people i I think people don't yeah it is disrespectful isn't it and a lot of uh a lot of westerners brits americans australians whatever go over there and maybe want to ask all the locals hey tell me about escobar like it's funny but they've i like your brother and former brother-in-law you know they had their lives destroyed by this guy it's a totally different thing when you're there they don't want to talk about him yeah absolutely i think like when someone became famous by like inflicting so much pain you know, um, just by murdering people, by bombing places, you know, putting the car bombs was a huge thing in the 80s with Escobar. You know, he invented car bombs here. Uh, he would bomb like, you know, the the investigative headquarters, whatever. You know, he would just bomb everything like the plane that I was mentioning. Um, yeah, I think like when you get ahead in life by, you know, causing so much misery, they're just like, you know, I, I guess it's still like we still live, you know, under some kind of cartel domination you know in a way so there's always it's always a touchy subject with with people who are from the place from mexico or from colombia like i can i can see that side of the population saying like wait you know that's you know that's caused a lot of violence and suffering what why are you glamorizing why are you so interested in you know like the good you know because it's always kind of seen as you're right like i want to know about escobar i want to go to his house and that's like a museum or something or other so yeah killed so many people caused so much misery um we've talked about uh you know you as a woman in the industry or you know what about women in on the other side uh women gangsters women cartel bosses we don't see enough of that in the movies is that happening in real life we don't and there and, and there are some and they're so interesting very interesting ruthless i've met you know i've met like a couple like I maybe three or four who were all very like super fascinating because you know it's just so there's so many like layers of complexity with a, a, a female criminal I think you know 
sometimes they're mothers and they have, you know, their, their children and they're also this and that, you know what I mean? They have, they, they place, like, there's so many, they play so many roles. It's not like as kind of clear cut and simple as, as, you know, just some drug cartel boss, you know? Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, and I think because it's like a man's world and this and that, they can be more violent or they are expected to act more like this or be more, you know, feared or to be respected so they can be, they can be more violent sometimes, to be honest. Um, and maybe more compassionate as, too. And maybe one thing doesn't, you know, like exclude the other. So I think it's really interesting. Like it's one of those areas where there's so much nuance and it's so complex. And I, I think those stories are great. Like, you know, we tend to like stories that are simplified, but I think a lot of, you know, human beings are very complex. And a lot of what makes us interesting is just kind of those gray areas. Are there any in particular that you, that come to your mind? Any like female gangster people? I mean, not like a gangster per se, but I, I spent a lot of time with a female um, smuggler, like a human trafficker. Um, she was, she was like really brave. She had, she built like a, a big, not an empire, but she built a pretty decent business, made a ton of money. And she had to deal with a lot of nonsense every day from cartels, from the police, from, I mean, she was tortured and she was beaten up. And you know, this, this whole, she was fascinating. She, she had kids. Um, so we spent a lot of time in her house and just kind of seeing how she, you know, she, she operated and she was, I always remember she was very professional. She kept all the, the, you know, the accounting, like, you know, was, was perfectly like organized. And, um, she had, she had a shredder. So she would shred all like the documents. Uh, but then like, she would just like have like fantastic hair and makeup every day. Cause she would have like people come and, and like do her makeup and do her hair. And she had like, you know, wonderful, like very long nails. It's just like, it was just really interesting. Presentation. That's really interesting. Yes, presentation. Absolutely. I guess people do what they do to get by. And I don't know. It's, it's so complicated, isn't it? Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I want to move on to, we've got, because uh, we've got about 10, 15 minutes left. So I want to get on to your work involving pandemics and Africa and stuff like that. Tell me a bit about, about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, I, I, I'm kind of like um, hypochondriac, <laughs> funnily enough. And I hate covering like disease or, you know, when there was cholera in Haiti and, I, and you know, the, this network wanted me to go. I was like, no, I don't really do well with that. But then... Um, you know, Ebola happened in 2014. And I was like, there's no way I'm covering anything with Ebola because it's just such a scary, it's just such a scary virus. Right. And then, um, there was, there was talk, uh, about a vaccine, experimental vaccine again, uh, you know, to protect you against Ebola. And that was being done at the NIH, but a do by a doctor called, um, Dr. Fauci, who now we probably all know who Dr. Fauci is. But back then, many people didn't know who he was. And um, I met him and I was like, I'm going to take this vaccine. This, this, And he's like, well, you know, this is experimental. I'm like, yeah, this is great. 
I'm going to finally go to Congo and cover the Ebola outbreak there. But I went to cover that outbreak because it was an outbreak in a conflict zone. And that was more interesting for me and this British cameraman, Phil Collar. We were like, this is really like a small niche where very small amount of people can cover this, right? Like you have to know how to cover like a very deadly virus that spreads, you know, quite easily contagious. But you also have to, most importantly, know how to move in a very volatile, dangerous um, terrain. So um, we went there. It was really interesting. It was like war had made this contained, you know, outbreak, like go completely wild again. And it was like burning through other populations. So it was like, potentially spreading further. And we were embedded with the WHO. They're these doctors who are so brave and amazing. I mean, so much admiration. Um, and we came under attack because there were all these kind of like, you know, people there were very like skeptical of all the money being brought in to fight Ebola, that some people didn't believe in Ebola, that it really existed. And, you know, imagine like you're lose someone and there's all these like, you know, hazmat suits, like astronaut people coming there and taking the body and burning it and you just like don't ritual like your rituals don't so it was very strange they they basically thought all these white doctors were inventing or spreading or doing something weird so they they came under attack oh hence we came under attack as well um it was really it was really terrible um and again like really interesting assignment like we didn't really spend much time covering actual the actual virus and the spread but um but kind of how you know doctors without borders and all these you know different ngos and and organizations are so brave and try to contain these outbreaks because the problem is andrew now if someone has ebola or like i don't know i heard the other day they have there, there's a case, two cases of marburg in um ghana and marburg is a cousin of ebola and it's 90% fatality. So, you know, with COVID, the fatality rate, it's disputed, but it's what, probably like 2% tops, right? Like of people who get it die. This is 90%. <laughs> this is almost like a death sentence if you get it, Marburg. Does it spread as, as pervasively as COVID? It, no, because it's not airborne. That's the thing, like Ebola, Marburg, and all the filoviruses are not airborne. So that's good. But Ebola basically spreads through like mucus and like bodily fluids and mu mucus membranes. So if you touch someone and they're sweating and you touch them and then you touch your eyes, you get Ebola, you can get Ebola or Marburg, right? Or so it's just like all these kind of things where like, you know, someone, one of the people who was like spreading it when we were there was a motor taxi driver because he was transporting people. And I guess you have to hold on and you're not touching the person, but maybe, I don't know, they're sweating or something. You touch them. It's like, it was kind of like, so a handshake, if you have a cut or you then touch, you know, scratch your nose or, you know, whatever. Like it's, so this kind of, um, living in surfaces thing that we learned at the beginning, remember of COVID, that's very pervasive with Ebola. And then, so like all the hazmat suits, like it's got like a ton of virus. So the way you take it off, is crucial. At the beginning of Ebola 2014, most doctors were dying because they didn't, they didn't know how to take their things off, uh, you know, the whole hazmat suits, whatever, the, the Tyvek suits properly. It's very scary. Very scary. Like an enemy, you don't see it. It's like this tiny, tiny, tiny thing floating all around. And, you know, you just start seeing people and you're like, you don't want to, you know. So anyway, that was like my kind of experience with, with a horrible virus. And then three months later, 
I was in a hospital filming for COVID in New York as, you know, as the virus was burning through New York. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but it, it was like New York was very affected, was affected really badly. This is this is almost scarier than the cartel stuff because it's an unseen enemy. This is probably, you know what? Absolutely. I was so, it wasn't scary so much. It was scary, but it was also depressing. Depressing in a way that I thought it was just killing something in me, you know, just filming very brave nurses and doctors, but who were, you know, we they had like 20 people die on them every day, you know? Uh, and that, um, that, I mean, it was a horrible time. It was the worst wave and the worst time in New York, but we were filming exactly then in, in, in a hospital that was completely overwhelmed. And, and I mean, it's just like you kind of see, um, it, humans are meant to touch each other and be warm and be nice. You know what I mean? We're, we're social beings. I mean, that whole thing of not being able to interact with people was very hard for me not being able to, they wouldn't even see us. They would just see our little eyes, you know, behind the, like all these like masks. And we had like all these, you know, real PPE, like, cause we were in, you know, highly exposed areas. So it's just like, it was just almost like, you know, like a horrible science, science fiction movie. And when you were in Africa, you must have felt, did you feel like, uh, I can't even touch anyone because if I touch the wrong person with a 90% death rate, that's it for me. <laughs> it was awful. Like one time this whole village came out and they wanted to shake our hands and I shook like everybody's hands because I can't say no to, you know, someone who's being so polite and nice uh. thinking every time like, oh my God, like, yeah, exactly. You just think differently. But I don't even know. I mean, do you even, do you see people the same way after COVID? I think it's like, it's changed all somewhere. We're a little bit like, I'm close to this person or I'm, I'm in this place where there's a lot of people like we're all a, a little we're all conscious of that now for sure well I wanted the handshake to become extinct for a long time I don't want to touch someone's yeah. hands particularly the inside of their hands I don't mind a fist bump uh, I don't want to touch some guy's hands or some woman's anyone's hands so I'm sort of happy that that's there's now an excuse even in formal <laughs> circumstances not to do it the other reason I don't like it is because it always the other guy especially like a man it's like an alpha male thing their handshake lasts I, I just want one shake but they sort of hold shake 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 and it's still going and I'm like I've already stopped like holding and now my hands just like limp in their hands because i've i want to move my hand away but that's a weird strange right i mean do they do like you squeeze harder so i'm like more powerful than you kind of thing is that or is that just i i think some of it's that some of it's that and then some of it is just that they have learned that a handshake is like five seconds long that's how long their handshake is my handshake is like one and a half to two seconds it's a firm bam yeah you're just like let let me go yeah it's it's funny what what you were just saying before about um, you, you could have sort of died from p being polite. Uh, you, you know, you wanted to shake the hands, but it, it seriously increased your risk of dying. And I, I think I've always thought that I could die out of uh, out of over politeness as well. It's not even like polite, but I think like some people are so excited to see you. They really are because, you know, it's like we were in this little village in the middle of nowhere um, in Central African Republic. And, and it's like their like faces were so excited to see me or whatever I don't know why but I'm like I don't want to disappoint you know like it's more than polite it's like I I love people I do love human beings you know like I think you know everybody has something really special and um and I really don't like this kind of like cold but you know I come from like a Latin culture as well like you know where where nobody has really like a 
like a space where it's just like you, you know my personal space everybody's very much like you know absolutely like hugging you <laughs> i don't know like weirdly hugging you yeah it is it's not great it's not great for pandemics like that that's for sure I remember when I used I because obviously I you know I was in Latin America a long time. There's the two kisses to men and women that you meet, and then um, I lived in France for a while. And the particular area of France I was in, which was Montpellier, you have to do three kisses. And I think there are even parts where there are four kisses somewhere. And I remember just being at like house parties or something, and it's like, okay, I want to go home now. There's about thirty people here. That's going to be ninety kisses if I want to leave. Like I, that must have changed during COVID. That that kind, of, or maybe it hasn't. I think that's changed, uh, and and it's not very practical for sure. The four kisses, that's yeah, ridiculous, right? It's a bit yeah, showing off, isn't it? How many kisses they can do? Very French, really. I mean, it's just very strange, though. Like human beings wanting to be so close to each yeah. other. Now we don't want to be close to each other. Now we just like you know, please. It's distance. fantastic. It's a strange thing. I think it's gonna have like weird implications that we don't realize. We shall see. Monica, where do you want to send people to? What should they look at of your stuff? Where, where do you want them going? I have a like my website, uh, which is monicaviennesar.com. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, most of my reports are like on YouTube. Uh, I put like whenever I can update my website. That's where they'll find most of my stuff. I mean, I like I do very little social media now. As I say, I'm very disillusioned by the whole social media world. But I mean, I have a Twitter account, Instagram, and I have all of that, but I don't use it as much. I see. Well, I messaged you to get you to come on here through the messaging. So that was something. Yeah, that's true. Through Twitter, right? We always communicate that's through right. Twitter. That's right. That's right. Well, Monica, thank you so much for coming on the Edge podcast. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Yeah, I'd love to be back. I, you know, I love talking oh, to you. So we'll get you back on. It was great. Thank you so much, Monica, for joining me on The Edge. Did you guys enjoy that? Was that an insight into a, an obscure and murky world about which we know very little? I'm so grateful that brave, intrepid journalists like Monica do exist and can give us that insight into these worlds. Let her, let Monica that is, and I know on Twitter and Instagram what you thought. Um, please keep on reviewing the show. We've got some great episodes coming up with the Coffin Confessor who reveals the secrets of the dead at funerals, Sarah Ferris who helped her sister, Connor Con Artist, and Elgin Strait on the Moonies cult and how he grew up in this weird world of Moonies. It's a cult, don't worry, I'll tell you all about it. And, and linked to the assassination of the ex-Japanese Prime Minister. So do stick around. It's all to come and have a lovely day, evening, or whatever, wherever you are. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.